Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Krish Subramanian, co-founder and CEO of Chargebee, a subscription management and billing company that's raised more than $100 million in venture capital, backed by Excel, Tiger Global, Insight Partners, and Steadview. And in this episode, we go through a wide variety of topics, including how Chargebee got started, how they were bootstrapping in the beginning, the framework they used to get their first customers, how the business evolved after raising capital, Chris's advice for finding your ideal customers efficiently, go through things like pricing, how they expand their, their features, and going more into the product side of Chargebee as well, what metrics they pay attention to. Obviously, it's a B2B SaaS company. Go through some of those things as well. And why Chargebee focuses on inbound sales, their experience with fundraising, $105 million in venture capital they've raised to date, what problems Chris is trying to solve today as CEO of Chargebee, navigating the shift to remote work, and some of the recent trends that Chris has found, and also how Chris recharges within the business as well. All that and more can be found on this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Chris Supermanian, co-founder and CEO of Chargebee. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. Great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. And there's a lot to talk about with with Chargebee, and I'm excited to talk about how far you've you've come in the last you know nine years or so with this company. But for people who aren't familiar, what is Chargebee doing, Krish? Sure. Uh, Chargebee specializes in subscription management and recurring billing. Um, one way to think about us is we are the Switzerland for billing. <laughs> we are an agnostic uh, uh, solution that simplifies uh, uh, revenue workflows for subscription businesses. And there's a lot we're going to get into with this in terms of everything that you've gotten to this point. I love hearing in the beginning, though. Why did you decide to start this business in the first place, Krish? Uh, I think uh, that comes from uh, inspiration of multiple companies, uh, people who have built companies before us. Like Zoho uh, was where my three co-founders come from. So that was one inspiration. Bootstrap company, $500 million plus ARR journey, 22 years. And uh, great. Uh, thankfully, my co-founders were able to uh, get an opportunity to learn how to build products there for more than 10 12 years one of them was uh, employee number 20 or something like that uh, at zoho before it was zoho um, and uh, joel spolsky you may be familiar of course everybody is familiar with stack overflow and trello but that comes from uh, this uh, company called the fork creek software it doesn't get any more boring than building buck tracking software but the founder built the company in a very interesting way and joel spolsky used to write this blog called joelonsoftware.com uh, this company in New York. Um, so the Stack Overflow Trello, all of that came from the same stable, but the originally in early 2000s, he used to document the journey of the founder building this company, his philosophy of building the company, how to treat developers right, and things like that. We were fascinated by that as engineers who read this. And he was also uh, somebody with pedigree, meaning uh, he was the first product manager for Microsoft Excel macros who quit a cushy job <laughs> to want to desire, with the desire to start a company. I think all of these played a huge role. And for me, I got infected by my first job where I got a chance to work with the, the founder CEO in the first job itself straight out of college. And uh, this was in Bangalore. Um, and all these, I think, uh, 
the the idea of getting infected by wanting to be a founder to get chairs out of the out of the way so we can we want to learn how to build a company all of that um, was there in the back of the mind for over 10 years while we were building the company so we saved up enough to say to give ourselves a chance to try and build a company so we were just saving up something like one third of our salaries for 8 9 years uh, to keep it away so that at some point we can quit and start and that's what we did uh, by the time Uh, the environment was much much better conducive like saas made it possible for all of us uh, to be able to give ourselves a chance to start and that happened in 2011 that's incredible so here that you with that you knew that you wanted to start a company start saving right away basically to be able to do that and i know you bootstrapped for a bit take me through that part of it and and how long you ended up bootstrapping for i'm curious about that sure um we we never knew that we could raise money <laughs> that was the honest <laughs> truth we just did not know uh that you could build with other people's money because we are just software engineers happy to just write code uh, and <laughs> that's what we are doing before uh but after starting up we learned a lot about uh, at least three of them decided to focus on building the product and because i come from product implementation services background they wouldn't let me touch the code so i had to learn everything else <laughs> the uh marketing making tea uh sales <laughs> everything else and my strength is mostly customer conversations and i really enjoy solutioning and customer conversations which is what i was doing um and while doing it i also came across uh, um angel hacks bible by nivi and navel uh, i think uh, both of them had written this book uh, which was published in venture uh, venture beat or somewhere and i learned about uh, how to raise a convertible debt and all of that and our friends uh, uh, freshworks um at that time they started as fresh desk they had also raised capital from axel so they introduced us to axel uh, as an investor and said okay why don't you just talk to them because this is a good team um and they mutually introduced us and we kept in st- touch uh, after a year of starting and then we stayed in touch and it took us close to a year of uh, continuous conversations to actually understand that the the kind of uh, help an investor could provide and the oversight because as first time founders i could already see all the mistakes we were making we did not ship out the product in more than a year uh, it took us more than a year to ship the alpha wow. right and uh, we did not charge the customers fast enough even though we were building a <laughs> building product <laughs> and we were happy to just as engineers we were just happy to just keep on giving the product for free without actually charging as soon as possible and now i actually tell that to people and i could realize that all the mistakes that we are going to do more and more as first time founders and we felt that probably it would make sense for us to raise money from an external investor one to provide guidance and also to uh, capitalize on the opportunity because the realization was the more we spoke to people we could see that this opportunity is going to be big and we but it was also too big to wrap our head around because every business is some form of a subscription business right subscription is not new newspapers have been running subscriptions for forever in across the entire globe uh but it's just that they collect money through resellers and it just has a network effect of how they collect money just differently but in a digital world it's going to change so we could see that we might either bite more than we can chew uh if we don't know how to approach this problem uh but the opportunity is big right how do we then do it then we said maybe it won't be a bad idea to actually take money from somebody who knows how to build these kind of companies so we decided to take axel <laughs> money from axel uh and that was the best one of the best decisions that we that's we're going to come back to this in a second but i want i want to go back to the beginning sure. again how did you actually get your first users what was that process like getting your first users for for chargebee 
Uh, I think more than the tactics, I think I can give the framework that we used, uh, which may be helpful because the tactics continues to change every three years, uh, where you find your customers and all of that. Um, I think the, the part where we spend more time is uh, in the absence of our product, are the customers having the problem or not? I think that, and then now where do you find those customers who are having that problem? I think that is timeless as a principle. Mm. And that is what we did at that time where we hung out in different forums uh, uh, where people were complaining about these issues, right? Uh, I used to be in, uh, I think user voice still exists in some form or the other, uh, user voice. And there is also Odesk, which had this public forums where you can make feature requests to products, right? And I used to hang out in these forums uh, looking at what gaps are they saying in, let's say, Braintree subscriptions, because Braintree used to have the subscription module but it's not complete enough. Every SaaS company was building on top of that and they were complaining about a bunch of things. PayPal had recurring billing, but it was not complete. Uh, Hacker News and different forums where I used to look at all the authorized.net, used to go into the forums and look at what is it people are complaining, engage with them in the conversation to say, uh, how can I help you solve the problem? In the absence of a product, how can they still complete whatever they want to accomplish? I used to offer the solution to tell them, guide them how they how to do that, like consulting, right? Basically just pro bono. And then I would drop a note to them saying, oh, by the way, we are building something to solve this exact problem. If you are interested, I'll be happy to sign you up for a beta. Let me know, right? And then sign off. And this is how I accumulated a 300, 400 signups before we launched. Uh, and some of these you can then uh, dive in deeper into some conversations that are more promising than others and then found our, recruited our specific set of beta customers for the early stage. And that's how we found our early customers. From there then, you mentioned going to the point where eventually you wanted, you raised capital. After that point, you raised capital then, how did that change the business? How did that change uh, how you operate? I'm curious on how that affected things early on. Uh, definitely not a straight line, <laughs> right? Because in, in, today, right, we can say that hey, we have raised $105 million and it looked like a success. But the, the early phase of every company is messy in some form or other, and that is true to us as well. Um, so the, the first three and a half years after launch was uh, what I call as a wandering phase. We wandered around so much <laughs> because everybody, the, the, the other side of the problem is also true, right? One is uh, every business that you come across is a subscription business. They have a problem, but what do you focus on? Um, because you will then get a spaghetti kind of a model where you get like hodgepodge of different types of customers, uh, like uh, agencies that are doing consulting work also wants to send recurring invoices. There are SaaS businesses that wants to send managed subscriptions, uh, which is subscription management, and also they want to send invoices. And then there are e-commerce companies that have no developers that want everything to be plug and play, and they want subscription management as well. Now, when you look at all of this, and then as a software engineer your brain tells you that yes challenge accepted <laughs> all of this can be solved and then you go into problem solving mode right but it's counterintuitive to think about how to let go of segments of customers and focus on the right type of customers for your first million so that you are able to accelerate revenue beyond the first million and my biggest learning and mistakes and learnings is that we tried having a lot of different types of customers early on uh, which is, I think, is good because then it gives you a good sample set of customers which are likely to find the right product market fit. Uh, but we just took three and a half years. I, I don't think it should have taken that long, right? If we were smart enough, we should have found that in maybe a year, year and a half. I would say we wasted a couple of years wandering around a little too much <laughs> as a first time founder. 
Uh, well, on that note, Krish, I mean, for other founders out there, then you mentioned being three and a half years, obviously a little too long. How would you suggest a, a founder or company goes through that process of figuring out the kind of uh, ideal customer situation? Sure. Um, so I think that the tricky part here is you raise venture capital. We think we are already on a treadmill and we want to show traction. And the unfortunate reality of that is uh, if you focus too much on trying to prove yourself to the investor, to tell them that I got it, right? And here is attraction. You will manufacture traction, which will not lead to a good outcome for both parties. That was my biggest learning, right? And thankfully, we were comfortable with telling our investors where we stood. And then we were able to go and tell them, okay, this is working. This is not working. And we are not going to push the pedal on getting more and more customers simply because we have money, right? And thankfully, we had those patient uh, Axel and Tiger Global. Both of them were very patient. And then we they let us do what we wanted to do. And Tiger is very interesting. They said, you have a good partner in Axel and they are the best when it comes to early stage. I trust them to guide you. So don't even bother telling <laughs> me unless you want more. Right? And that was beautiful. right? It gives a good level of confidence. Um, I would say uh, there are some leading metrics and lagging metrics that tell you if you are finding the right customers. Right? I'll give some specific examples. A wrong customer for us was uh, customers who are asking for more and more features because we are a billing system that also generates invoices. Uh, a set of customers were asking for more invoice customization, templates, and all of that, even as a very small business. Like they were having 10 customers. Uh, they call them clients because they are service business and they wanted more template customization, all of that. And then when I jumped on a call to ask them, what are you? And then they would complain saying, hey, FreshBooks has this for $15 product. You guys are charging $49. Why don't you give me more templates? I want to send this fancy invoice. Right? And that is a signal to you to know that our hypothesis is built on uh, high growth customers who want more and more uh, revenue and more customers, non-linear growth, and they should want to automate the subscription management part and the billing part, and and they should be comfortable with sending a simple invoice, right? And it's it's okay we for us to provide more sophistication, but for very large customers. But this was a clear no-no when it comes to the types of feature requests that were coming in. It was tangential, right? So that is uh, an example of tangential request that is leading your product in a completely different direction. You should be able to eliminate, okay, one type of customers. That's one signal. The second one is um, lagging indicators um, like uh, churn numbers where the customers are coming in because if you have a freemium, which we did early on, um, they, some set of customers were finding us attractive simply because they thought they were always going to be free on our product because we had 10 invoices free per month and they thought this is I always am going to have 10 invoices or less and they were finding us and they were activating they were putting the credit card in but knowing that they are not, never going to pay right and for them a $49 price point felt like it was not a shock sticker shock and they were like okay at any point any month if I go above this I'm going to pay $49 the moment we changed our pricing to something different, right? If you look at our current price, we have a generous premium, but we also have $299 price point at the entry level. And we wanted our customers to value the product in terms of their, their effort. I don't want to be sitting and doing this, sending these invoices, chasing invoices, and billing. Instead of billing automation, I cannot throw people at this problem if I have 100 customers, right? So I want this automated of the type of customers we want. And you need that sticker shock because pricing acts as a filter to know who you want as your the right customers. So that was second learning. The third is churn metrics. Because 
the moment they actually hit a certain inflection point are they churning out or are they churning out for the right reasons or the wrong reasons if you don't have a specific feature and that is coming in the way of their growth it's a good churn because at least you learned something by when you lost a customer because if you had the feature the customer would have stuck around because that was hampering the, that was coming in the way of their growth if you lose a customer because you say no to a particular feature like a fancy invoice that's a good churn for you yeah. right uh the lagging indicators like churn or churn cohort is also good but it takes 6 months for you to know what's really happening and the dangerous territory of experimenting with pricing is you have to pay close attention to the the leading indicators of qualifying the customer talking to the customer conversation one mistake i would again and again i i wouldn't want actually thankfully we didn't make this mistake don't substitute your own customer conversations by trying to outsource it like even if, i wouldn't say don't even recruit a sales person to think your customer discovery will be solved by a sales person no if you are building a product and one of the founders will have to be on the calls as much as possible to do most of the conversations till you feel confident confident that you have good product market fit and you want to break it down and break down the process and hand it over to others otherwise you should definitely spend more time in customer conversations is one uh, strong advice i would provide apart from all these <laughs> with those customer conversations christian what are some of the things you're asking or what, more so what are you trying to get out of these these conversations for other people who might be wondering right uh, i think uh, a standard one we should always ask at any stage is how did you find us because nothing like creating demand or knowing how the demand is getting created for you i would say that's just, that should be a standard question the second one is i think those are very standard in my opinion just in even today we still ask the same questions in our qualification calls how did you find us uh and if you actually can reach them in the first 10 minutes if they landed on your website they signed up i always optimize for speed uh, to try and reach out to them in the first 5 minutes when they are still on the website so talk to them and say what problem were you thinking when you actually landed on our, on your website what did what did you want to see solved i think that answer is golden for the person you are who's researching because the answer could be like oh my ceo asked me to go do a research then the moment they say that you know that okay there is a person who is being asked to do this job that person may not be the buyer yeah. right um and or if the ceo is researching then you would want to know what is the scale right what's the context of their business at uh, at what point are they researching us and i would also want to know who else are you looking at you ask these questions very fast very quickly like five minute conversation you just shoot the questions to say how do you find us what problem are you trying to solve um and what did you actually think about researching for this and what else are you looking at as comparison now what are your other options the moment you ask these fundamental questions you know who you are competing against right most of the time your competition is excel sheets or internal systems and even today for charge b 99% of the customers that we win are not from our custom uh, from our competitors at all it's a huge <laughs> blue ocean where we continue to win from homegrown solution and that is true for i'm sure that is a true for our competitors as well right we think we are competing with each other actually we are not competing with each other we are competing with homegrown solutions and and that comes out only in the first customer conversation if those are so important i've heard that repeated over and over again by founders in this show i mean talking to customers especially early on but even throughout the whole journey of really the company because it changes as you evolve as well and your customers change one thing i want to go back to quick though You talked about pricing a little bit there but I'd love to dive into that more. How has that evolved for you and 
what has that testing consisted of in terms of getting to the pricing you have today, which I imagine is, as you mentioned, much different than the early on. Right. Uh, I think it's a scary thing to change pricing. Uh, I'm assuming that when we say changing pricing, we are, we are revising upwards. Hopefully. <laughs> not like this. <laughs> right. No, no, we, do, we do the other thing as well. We went from $50,000 premium to $100,000 premium and we let go of a lot of revenue as well by offering that to our existing customers. Like everybody who would have qualified for premium, right? Uh, even now, we do that. And, and But it, it comes from a position of strength to be able to do that and do the right thing. Um, so when we did our iterations of premium, one of the, uh, I can talk about how we introduced a $50,000 premium and also revised the rest of the plans upwards, where we introduced a $99 plan and then um, a $399 plan and then a $599, something like that. I don't remember the exact number. Um, but when we did that, it was very scary because for us, the risk of losing $22,000 of MRR uh, was yeah. scary to think. <laughs> If, if all of them opt in for um, all the freemium plans, right? We, we only knew how to sell the entry-level plan at that time. We, we just hired two other higher tiers, but most of them were not buying that because it was based on a single vector of pricing based on number of invoices or something like that. And so unless you get a large customer who's inquiring, we are not going to sell the larger plans. And uh, uh, that is one lesson I have, right? You should have your pricing justified by more than one vector. Right, not just based on number of seats, but some features that become compelling should also be a reason for them to choose a at least a mid-tier plan, and then you can have an anchor plan above that. Uh, but you drive your product to make sure that you are building more and more value into your highest tier plans, so that you are able to introduce your uh, more and more win more customers in your highest tier plan, or introduce one more tier above that. I think that framework is generally helpful. Um, I think uh, one lesson that I learned uh, from I think. Uh, Influitive founder who was, I think, originally the founder of Pardot or one of those systems. Uh, I think he told me at SaaS Talk uh, in Ireland, he told me that one lesson for him was at the beginning of the year, can you ask yourself, what would it take for me to charge 20% more to all my customers, new customers next year? If you ask that question today, it's scary, <laughs> but you have one year to build enough value into your product to justify 20% more. You do that for five years, you can start from $4,000 entry-level pricing ACV to start selling probably $100,000 ACV customers in three to five years. And that becomes very much possible, but only if you think that your product can influence the price and value perception for your customers. And the pricing revision is something I always encourage. With The moment you think about it this way, Every one year, you can think about how do I charge more, right? We have not revised pricing in the last two years, but we have done a lot of micro experiments to also do pricing, right? I'll come to that part. But I think every founder, especially in the early days, to find the right product market fit, you should test your pricing this way by thinking about how do I charge 20% more next year? What do I want to build in all my tiers so that you build the right value uh, into the features? Because you are going to have a 10-member, 20-member developer team and product team building more features into the plan but if it is really not delivering the value to your customers then why are you building so many features <laughs> with having a development team building more features each year and thinking about how you can get 20 percent you know more in terms of your pricing does that just go back to literally those customer conversations and figuring out what they you th you're thinking they might pay for the next year or pay more for 
beautiful question no i think uh, there are three parts to this right one is your bugs maintenance you have your tech debt product debt there is going to be some effort into it right you know that you built with some hypothesis your customers when they start using you learn a bunch of things you would want to continuously change but it should not drive 100% of your roadmap the second thing is uh, you also get feature requests from your existing customers who are growing and all of that and of course you pay attention to that and especially if you can uh, if the features they are requesting for will also help their growth in uh, a tangible way then that means the customers are going to pay you more and more net retention rate goes up because of that so you would want to create that as a swim lane so the first swim lane is your own debt the second swim lane is your customer features requested features the third swim lane for should be for your new customers and this new customer conversation is where you can think about how do i charge more for my new customers of course i am a big advocate for um, keeping the promises for existing customers to make sure that Uh, you can give them a stable ground for them to continue building on the promises made on the existing prices but your new customers if you get if you onboarded let's say 100 customers this year and you are going to onboard let's say 200 customers next year your biggest leverage is by charging more to your 200 new customers who have never seen your existing prices yeah and that so you should drive your roadmap product roadmap for all three swim lanes and 50% of your roadmap should go towards these new customers so that your product becomes differentiated you deliver more value of course those features will also help will be driven by your learnings from existing customers but you should also think about new customer acquisition with the focus on new customer acquisition while driving this roadmap one of the things i know we've we've kind of talked about a, a little bit with some of this uh, kind of broken up but especially for founders early on as they're going through their business. I mean, what are some of the metrics that really matter when it comes to SaaS and things that maybe you you wish you would have known more or paid more attention to in terms of the metrics that that matter? Sure. Um, I think one of the things I would uh, strongly encourage from early days for everybody to find out for their own business, which will be unique, is what is your North Star metric, right? The revenue is a lagging indicator. What is going to be your leading indicator? Uh, I think that will be the key. For us, it's processing revenue, right? How much... are our customers really processing today we process 4 billion dollars of arr of our customers and we manage 4 billion dollars for our customers and that is our north star metric if we can help them process 10 billion dollars or 20 billion dollars next year uh, this year i think that will be phenomenal right and that's our north star metric and everything else becomes a uh, and i'm sure every if you are building a user license based one um, uh, you will have some product metric that becomes your north star metric for usage or how customers derive value leaving that aside i would say on the as a subscription or a saas business you should also look at a, a few things uh, early stage i wouldn't put a lot of emphasis on um, churn numbers churn numbers tells you something is wrong but i would uh, say go pay more attention to the qualitative conversation around churn rather than the quantitative number because some churn may be good churn in the early days till you are finding the product market fit but beyond product market fit i would say pay more attention to the churn numbers uh which becomes very very important right all the churn cohorts retention cohorts and all of that on the revenue as well as the logo uh, and one more thing i would add is your north star metric look at it as a cohort um and that is actually super useful because every month the customers you are adding are they really consuming more and more of your product for the right metrics that you want them to consume i think that will be helpful on the other side is nrr is a good one to track net retention rate of your revenue net revenue retention Uh, anything above 120% will be phenomenal like compound that for 10 years you can build a beautiful bootstrap business or a venture funded business but anything over 20% 120% is phenomenal um 
early stage i would say one of the things we all miss out is uh, optimizing for uh, annual uh, cash flows right by trying to get paid upfront as much as possible whether it's quarterly payments six months annual try and do that i think that ties into the the pricing experiments uh, justin uh, because i think i missed the second part of the pricing related conversation uh, i missed the point which is uh, there is a lot more to a pricing experiment that you can do beyond revising pricing which is currencies you get mm. at least 5 to 10% uplift in conversion as well as your margins that are available by localizing pricing um, i wouldn't advocate that very early but at least once you know that you are have able to repeatedly sell and if you have trials coming in from global customers introduce your gbp pricing euro pricing and aud pricing and so on and so forth try that out the second is introduce your monthly contracts and annual contracts and quarterly or half yearly whatever works for you try that out because that's your biggest lever if you get at least 50% up paid up front your cost of capital comes down you don't have to raise too fast your monthly burn will come down significantly and that's a huge lever and we don't think about it right if you are going to make 1 million dollars next year imagine getting funded 1 million dollar right now <laughs> right or you're going to get that cash yep. flow right um that will be phenomenal so how do you then uh, use customer revenue in a way that you can experiment with pricing plus it gives an anchor with respect to to help the customers think about contracts slightly differently there are always some customers who will be willing to pay more i would say cash flow churn nrr the qualitative customer uh, churn conversations right i would double down on um, making sure you talk to as many customers as possible don't create too much friction in the cancellation but at least create enough friction to incentivize them to show genuine intent to want to talk to them either through email or a survey or by picking up the phone you would want to know why they are leaving where they are leaving to uh, i think both are very very important to know if it's a good churn or a bad churn those are the ones uh, that comes to the top of the mind yeah and chris you mentioned early on like the the early days customer acquisition and obviously that's that's much different than where you're at now i'm sure as you've raised over 100 million dollars how has that customer acquisition side of things evolved with the business chris sure um so the the model continues to remain uh, the same right what the i think we tend to over complicate business a lot of times i think that's how uh, shaker describes it beautifully shaker on our board describes it where a uh, lot of good businesses were built on doubling down on whatever is working right rather than trying to find new tricks um, so that's so for us we built with the inbound framework learned things from hubspot um, i did not know the difference between sales and marketing while starting right meaning i knew but not in practice yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so which means that uh, i had to learn um, the customer acquisition through inbound funnel was how we built it and today 99% of our revenue continues to come through inbound right and if even if we do outbound we do the uh, a variation of that uh, for even account based marketing and other te- techniques for larger customers continues to be built on the strength of inbound and our performance marketing demand gen engine where google adwords we understand google adwords really well that's a platform on which we stand and then we do all the other variations of the different types of demand gen we can do because you get permission based selling uh, the things that we experiment with are outbound through emails like i'm sure most of the founders would have studied a predictable revenue yep. book uh, which teaches you what salesforce has done what has worked for them i'm sure the playbooks are different will continue to evolve but that's something you don't want to ignore if you are going after larger customers like for example cfos right you don't expect them to be searching but they will be available in round tables or they will take recommendations from others 
to find solutions so which means that if cfo is a persona that you sell to then the outbound playbook changes um partnership huge role uh, for us it continues to be different because we have a freemium segment and we also have uh, 40 plus 40 or 50 integrations that we uh, integration partners we work with and we all have a customer base that is overlapping right so we continue to work with our partners like say taxes or stripe when it comes to payment processing and braintree on uh, the payment processing side or a crm system like hubspot we continue to work with them uh, their partnership team do joint events we used to do that and now the events have become online and now we do more <laughs> webinars thought leadership teaching the playbook right get accept as a charge we customer and also a partner uh, get accept as a the serial entrepreneurs from nordic country but y combinator company and these guys know everything about how to negotiate contracts and all of that that's what they do when charge we and uh, get accept go get together to talk about how to negotiate contracts how to close a sale a lot of vps of sales want to listen to it right so we also use that to build a top of the very top of the funnel using thought leadership leveraging the partner network to drive demand and then again it goes back to the same playbook of inbound so whatever we do we build on the same whatever is working and our dna is what we double down on but the variations of that is what we try to introduce to build our top of the funnel uh, and then bring them all back into the same inbound marketing Krish, why did you decide to go with the inbound playbook? Did you always know that was what you wanted to do early on? I'm curious. Uh, natural constraints. I'm I'm still based in Chennai. This is home. Uh, Chennai is south of India, <laughs> and uh, uh, I decided to bootstrap. So I had no intention of traveling and recruiting customers. So <laughs> I had to figure out what would work from this part of the world. But we, from the beginning, we wanted to build a global company. Uh, so because this is the customer base we have always served in our career. Uh, i come from uh, product implementation background for fortune 500 customers mostly working in i used to live in us and also served only global customers and my co-founders also built for global customers so the only way because of a natural constraint of building from here it's like atlas same kind of a model right if you are building from australia but you want us customers what do you do you cannot and smb customers at a 2000 dollar 4000 price point you cannot travel so we had to use inbound and thankfully upspot was teaching all of us how to do <laughs> yep. this <laughs> Super helpful with that. And and one thing we haven't talked about but I think it would be useful for for people as well. I mean, you've raised 105 million dollars in, in VC. How have you gone about that? Anything around the the fundraising side of things that might be helpful from your lessons uh, that you have in terms of your your process and things that might be helpful for other founders? <laughs> sure. I think people say this, right? Once an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur in mindset. I think the switch goes on. I think the bootstrapper, the scrappiness is also similar. it's very hard to make us spend money <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that that continues to be the case i think the good companies will continue to do that right which is you don't want to spend all the money and so most of the money that we have raised is still in the bank where but it gives you the cushion to double down on execution and accelerate revenue and you automatically keep the burn low and you are able to do that i think from a mental model and approach perspective i am an advocate for that scrappiness as much as possible of course you should experiment in the right areas and uh, try and do different things for example we sponsor a bunch of things events uh, to test the roi and things like that so from a mindset perspective it, you force yourself to figure out how to spend money yeah, justin is there a particular direction in which you wanted the the answer to be helpful to the founders nothing in particular i mean i'm always curious as to how people go about raising how they were able to especially as a first time founders raising venture capital i mean it can seem daunting and you know the process is difficult i'm just curious anything uh anything from your experience you know around that sure um early stage i would say um now there are 
I think uh, I'm speaking from for this part of the world. I'm sure Valley was always this way with a lot of angels available. Uh, but majority now in Europe as well as in uh, Asia, um, there are more angels uh, available from operational people who have been able to go through some successful rounds of funding um, and, and exits who are able to now invest. I think I would start from there. Uh, with people who have validation, if you are raising your first round of funding, I would not start with the... There are venture investors who are coming down more and more to do the first round of funding, but I would optimize for raising from at least some angels who understand your customer problems who can help you and provide you some time. And I would optimize for that. Uh, Because it's also a validation, it helps uh, get the right guidance to take money from the right investors. Um, the the second part is if you have already raised money in the um, the market is flush with a lot of money right? and the, the I I think about this a lot Justin which is when the market is a flush with a lot of money especially in good times when everybody thinks that okay it's going to be like this forever and a lot of money chasing a lot of uh, good companies uh, I think we are not as founders you are no, not going to get rich overnight by the valuation of the company right. Yeah. Our eventual, it's all paper-based valuation and our wealth gets created only through the eventual, uh, let's say the exit or uh, eventually taking this to IPO. And I'm sure there are so many different ways in which you are now able to, options opening up for exits, yeah. right? So many markets in which you can list and even $50 million companies are getting listed in Australian Stock Exchange beautifully, right? And markets are rewarding those. The, the problem is not just NASDAQ or one of those. And that's not the only solution. So the way I would think about fundraise is uh, always think about uh, the, the fundamentals, which is if you can continue to compound the business year on year, where will we be in five years? And what are our long-term modes where will some competitor or some new companies come in come in and then sweep us out of the market in the next three years is or five years? Is that possible? I think continuing to invest in the defensible modes, if you can focus on, keep our heads down, focus on that, while raising money at an appropriate valuation, I think that gives the best chance for long-term wealth rather than optimizing for short-term wealth when there is a lot of money chasing. Like, for example, if there is an investor who is willing to give 20x or 40x of the um, current valuation, maybe if 20x seems reasonable, like whatever money you raise, let's say you are at uh, 3 million or 5 million this year and you want to go to, uh, let's say, 10 million end of the year. And if somebody is giving you... Uh, uh, 10x value, 20x valuation. Whatever capital that you raise, with that capital, will you be able to grow into the revenue multiple that will be justified even in a bad market, or will you will you put yourself in a situation where you have to raise again at a much higher valuation? And if the market turns bad, will you be able to go raise? I think that question should determine what is the right valuation for a founder. Uh, or raise more if you are going to raise at a higher valuation raise more sufficiently enough so that you can comfortably continue building the company without forcing yourself into a fundraise in the next 12 to 12 months or 18 months uh, at a much higher valuation if you end up raising a down round you will erode the value for all the employees and yourself by doing a down round right so i think that should be the key when it comes to yardstick for raising it up one thing we haven't discussed that I want to get into and more so because of where you're at now and one of the questions you actually you mentioned that you ask your customers, I'm going to ask you, what problems are you trying to solve today, Krish, from your perspective as, as CEO? Oh, it's as CEO. Um, okay. So we are now a team of 500 people, right? And global. 
um uh, even though team has adjusted to we we are not a remote first company we were not a remote first company right and covid forces to become remote and uh, we now are we have this thing called project kintsugi internally kintsugi is a japanese word uh, for making art out of something that's broken <laughs> so <laughs> we think of ourselves that way where the situation forces to somehow become remote but i don't think a lot of pieces are broken onboarding the way we could actually transfer what we care about the culture right as we call it um, all those things are not easily transferable in a remote environment in this kind of a setup so that really worries me how we are going to scale in the following year the next two years when we continue to come back to normal do we want to go back to the old office i don't think that's possible for us because we have made promises people have gotten comfortable with working from anywhere and we will be at a disadvantage if we don't embrace this change so that the the part about thinking about how to build a suddenly become a remote first company that learns from some of the best uh, companies that were built remote first it's like uh, software and saas right old school software companies are all looking forward to learning from companies that were born in the cloud and saas world yeah. right and for us this is natural they are all trying to figure out how do i become a saas company <laughs> and the same thing now applies to pretty much all of us and that's one big problem that i have Uh, in my back of my mind about actively solving the culture keeping the integrity of the group together and things that we care about what brings people together what makes what makes people want to stay here how do we preserve all of that and amplify that um that's one thing that really really worries me i think um uh, the one of the values is uh, related to customers that is um, we we talk about i think we mentioned this we built a company to build a learn to build an organization right and it was not an idea first company this was a team first company and um, so for us the obsession when i think about vision of the company the mission of the company is to solve the problem customer problem right the best we can and a bunch of things like all the words you can fill in <laughs> right but the, 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 the vision of the company is completely different right for us i'm not relating to the customer problem at all in my mind the vision is to build a company that acts as a platform where people are able to come in and obsess about customer problem and then create solve interesting problems it doesn't matter what the problem is and then how do you then as a ceo or a founder how do you think about that problem pretty much everything is all related to creating the right platform about long term thinking uh, making the right decisions even with respect to fundraise building a long term foundation of a company culture those are the things that worries me just Yeah, there's so many different things that CEOs have to CEOs have to think about, especially in this pandemic time. It's really changed how everyone thinks about things. And in terms of this kind of remote and like distri- I like the word distributed, as Matt Mullenweg from WordPress says, and they've been distributed for I think the whole time uh, in terms of WordPress auto- automatic, technically, and then Basecamp as well as another example of companies that have really yeah. done a great job with it as as models for people. Invision. Yeah. Uh, on that note, I, I want to give a shout out to GitLab. GitLab has published. Uh, all the playbook of how they hire uh what how they operate everything in their blogs and it's beautiful so if you are someone who has not checked it out yes definitely and there are some great resources out there so that's why i always love hearing hearing those and on that note of resources i mean for you any particular books that stand out that have been helpful for you in your your career so far uh um um uh, i i take pride in just being a lifelong learner that i think that's what drives us um one of the books i'm recently reading started reading is inside intuit a uh, beautiful book uh the first um, i'm just more than halfway through and it's phenomenal uh, i also like the messy middle uh, by scott blesky uh, which is very good um 
I think I'm a sucker for a lot of autobiographies and biographies. Love them. Um, uh, I think uh, the High Growth Handbook by Stripe is phenomenal for anybody in a high growth mode. Definitely, I would highly recommend that for every CEO because I never attended. I was never an executive before starting Chargebee. So which means that I did not have any clue how to run a board meeting. The first five years, we never had a board meeting, formal board meeting, right? Now, how do you do that? This book has a playbook for it. You, you lose the imposter syndrome by knowing that, yes, everybody else is also clueless. <laughs> so it's good. Right? You can read from outside and then you just do your own thing. So uh, I think the High Growth Handbook is beautiful. There's so many out there. And to your point of autobiographies and biographies, I think those are some of my favorite as well. The farther you get along, I think as you're earlier in your career when trying to figure out some of these things entrepreneurially wise, like some of the general like best business books, classic business books are, are, are great. But then as I've gone along, at least I, I love reading more about people and their journeys and what they've done. I'm reading the uh, Thomas Edison book right now. And it's, I'm like, I probably like a third of the way through because it's like 700 pages, but it's already phenomenal just in terms of his work ethic and drive and his curiosity about life and then to solve those problems for people and it's just it's just a fascinating book but i would like to echo that in terms of being a lifelong learner there's a lot of benefits and one of the last questions i have i'm just curious about for all founders especially ones who just have been built some very successful companies how do you recharge how do you step away from work what what recharges you um i think I, one thing i've learned in the last two years uh, i think i'm, I'm blessed uh, uh, in the sense uh, i have a co-founder um who was building the product for the first five years and I pulled him out uh, of the four founders. One of them continues to work with me, which means that I take his help and we mutually help each other to say, what is it we should be focusing on right now uh, and all of that. So we become basically, we coach each other and we also now have a coach. Um, I think um, one of the ways in which now I've learned to do this is by letting go. Um, the last two years I've learned to now um, build the uh, next level of team, the executives, right? And uh, continuously allowing, uh, setting up the structure in the organization that allows us to scale. Because everybody has a shelf life with respect to the energy with which you run with the, a specific set of problems. Um, so for me, the biggest learning is to learn to let go and recruit people, allow them to get excited and then allow them to run with it, right? And uh, the transition from a founder making most of the decisions to founder focusing on the fewer decisions um, that moves the needle and allowing the teams to uh, build it, I think, has been the biggest uh, learning for me. Um, by doing that, I'm trying to do less and less on a day-to-day basis, right? Or pick up something completely. That by itself is a huge recharge. Uh, the second part I deliberately do is uh, talking to customers, right? Uh, either whether it's customer support, reading customer support tickets, which I still do, or um, I've not done this in the last three to six months now. Uh, I, I used to just go into a chat, like customer chat, either in the sales <laughs> or the support chat. And then just hang out because especially if you get uh, disconnected from the reality of a lot of things and the thinking is muddled for a couple of days, I would just uh, not take most meetings and then I would tell them cancel most of it. But I'll just be reading support tickets or talking to customers. It just gives you the purpose back as to why you do what you do. And it gives so much of clarity. Um, And of course, if I want to completely stay away from everything, I just go for a solo drive. My wife (laughs) somehow tolerates it, even though I have two boys, 11 and 7. And she allows me to go for a solo drive for two days and just drive long distance to, and then listen to Audible or just quietly drive. There's that there's definitely some magic in going for road <laughs> trips or drives. I will say that's like the number one thing I've done during the pandemic. I went on a couple of different like, long drives and it just like clears your head and gives you a break and uh, props to your wife for right. giving you that freedom. 
<laughs> oh yes, every six months, every three six months. Yes, definitely needed. <laughs> and Krish, where can people go to learn more about Charge B and connect with you as well if they'd like to? Sure. Uh, so Charge B is uh, chargeb.com, uh, C-H-A-R-G-E-B-E-E.com. Um, and uh, my Twitter handle is uh, CB Krish, Charlie Bravo Krish. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. Of course, you can also, um, I have always mentioned my email ID, krish at chargeb.com. I do my best to clear my inbox as much as possible. Uh, so I'll krishacharvi.com <laughs> <laughs> email. So don't don't hesitate to reach out or link them. Uh, of course, Krish Subramanian is my name. You can find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Krish, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, man. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much, Justin. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.